Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 264A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get right into our feedback. Our first feedback comes uh, on uh, some feedback on our previous feedback episode. If you want to turtles all the way down. Uh, Ryan Nagy sends in this email. He says, first, I wanted to thank you for all your work on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. I'm sure it takes tremendous time and dedication to research topics, write scripts, record the podcast, and produce it. I stumbled onto the podcast about a year and a half ago, and I'm grateful I did. Shortly after I began listening, my wife gave birth to our first child, and we were tossed into the throes of early parenthood. During those weeks of sleepless nights, I binged dozens of episodes. While scrubbing baby bottles or rocking my daughter at odd hours of the night, your storytelling and thoughtful commentary alleviated some of the stress in those moments. Since then, the podcast has helped me better understand and appreciate my Catholic faith. Thank you. I wanted to revisit one of Major Bill Ray's stories from episode 190, which was the first of a two-part interview. During the interview, he explains that remote viewing... He would sometimes ask people for information about a target. As an example, he mentioned asking a Russian man where to find a certain room in the Kremlin. But later in the in the interview, Major Ray tells a story about a remote viewer in the General James Dozier kidnapping case who communicated with someone presently dead. According to Major Ray, the viewer went 300 years into the past to try getting information from a priest about the target. The remote viewer successfully communicated with the priest and obtained a name or a location. Does this interaction between the remote viewer and priest qualify as necromancy? Was the remote viewer speaking to a spirit? Or is this interaction different because the communication was between two live people who happened to be alive at different times? Well, first of all, Ryan, I'm very glad the show's been helpful and congratulations on your on your new daughter. That's awesome. Um, this interaction, so the remote viewer that Major Ray was referring to was Joe McMonagall, and what he did was mentally via remote viewing, I mean, this is what he, he says his, his experience was, he traveled to the past, found a living priest, and asked the living priest who the bishop was, and that enabled him to determine the location. Um, this would not be necromancy. Because at least as the phenomenon presented itself, the person he was talking to was alive. He wasn't contacting the person's departed spirit today. He traveled back in time. So this would be more like using a time machine to go back into the past and have a, have a conversation with a living person, even if the person's dead in the present day. The difference is that here, the time travel ostensibly would have been occurring via a psychic ability known as retrocognition the opposite of precognition, rather than by using a machine to go back in time. But it would still be talking to a living person. And then our next feedback comes on our episode 248, which was some patron questions. Oh, by the way, one more thing, my Columbo moment. 
my first <laughs> first Columbo moment. That's right. um, the we have we will have a an extensive discussion of what does and doesn't count as necromancy coming up in episodes two sixty nine and two seventy. So that'll be appearing in just a few weeks. Very good. So uh, this next feedback is on episode 248 on patron questions. And the first one comes from Tony L on YouTube, who writes, I know a pastor who explicitly tells his flock that they have not fulfilled their Sunday obligation if they arrive after the gospel reading. This pastor's opinion cannot be documented from present church documents. That's about the most charitable way I can answer that. All right. Deacon Rob Hogan writes in via email. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I listen to the podcast religiously and always enjoy it. Jimmy, your level of knowledge and understanding is such a gift. Thank you for the way you share it with all of us. I was reviewing the sections of the Catechism on Heaven and Hell and Last Things. Section 1038 tells us that both the just and the unjust will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ, and all will receive their resurrected bodies. The righteous will reign forever with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. But what happens to the unjust, who also are resurrected in their own damned bodies? The only reference in the catechism... In their own damned bodies. <laughs> no, their own <laughs> damned bodies. The only reference in the catechism is the statement that they will go away into eternal punishment. As you've talked about from time to time, heaven is a dimension primarily outside of space and time, but which must have some temporal and corporeal existence because Jesus, the Blessed Mother, and Elijah, and Enoch all went to heaven in their bodies. Even though Scripture does not tell us about anyone who was assumed into hell, the resurrection of the body and the last judgment make it seem like hell must have some corporeal and temporal existence too, since all of those resurrected bodies of the unjust need somewhere to go. So what do you think of the temporal and corporeal dimension of hell? Where is it? Do the church fathers offer us any guesses? Maybe they come back to our old broken earth and a real zombie apocalypse, or maybe it's downtown Houston. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I should point out that I never say that heaven is primarily outside of time. Uh, some theologians have been of the opinion that spirits in heaven may perceive time differently than we do. And the most I ever say is that time may work differently there than it does here, but it also may work exactly the same as it does here. In fact, frankly, that is my suspicion. I suspect that time works exactly in the afterlife the way we experience it. Whether you perceive it as running fast or slow is a different matter, but I suspect it works exactly the same. When it comes to hell, but I acknowledge that there are other opinions about exactly how it might work or other possibilities anyway. Um, when it comes to hell, we aren't told as much about hell as we are the final state of the blessed, and we're not even told that much about the final state of the blessed. You're right that the resurrected bodies of the damned would indicate some kind of bodily and thus presumably spatial existence. I also assume that they have the same kind of temporal existence that the blessed do. However, in terms of where they will be located, we really can't say. It could be on the new earth, with damnation being a state rather than a location, you know. Um, or it could be somewhere else and perhaps not even in our universe. Uh, this next feedback comes from episodes 249 and 250 on the Nazi Hess conspiracies. And this feed first feedback comes from me. 
<laughs> I have Ooh, uh, some getting so. getting sub meta here. <laughs> That's right. So uh, I will read my feedback. So, Jimmy, mm-hmm. I have some feedback on our recent episode number 250 on the death of Rudolf Hess, specifically on the possible motives for Hess's suicide. First, at 93, it's possible Hess was suffering from some form of dementia or senility, which may have been exacerbated by his extreme views and his history of mental illness. A kind of dementia could also explain why the suicide note sounded like Hess's own patterns of writing and speaking from decades before. Second, he'd been in prison for nearly 50 years, and I have heard reports of men who've been incarcerated for so long, becoming extremely fearful of losing the structure of prison life and a kind of agoraphobia. These are good points, and I I can't rule out your hypothesis. Uh, I ultimately, in our episode, concluded that the balance of probability points towards Hess committing suicide, but there are still factors that point in the other direction, like him apparently looking forward to being released. Though, as as I said, you raise good points that need to be considered. Oh, very good. I just polished my apple and... (laughs) Yeah. So uh, our next feedback comes from Anthony Grass on Facebook, who writes, to me, the biggest puzzle is what motivation he would have to kill himself before being released. This weighs heavier for me than the other factors, since the timing of it is so suspicious. And I don't generally trust any government official account without good evidence. Is it possible that the murderers could have forced him to write his suicide note? And he wrote it, accepting his fate, being too weak and fragile to fight back? Well, it's possible, uh, but the suicide note itself is prima facie evidence of intent to commit suicide, absent evidence uh, to the contrary or evidence of coercion. Uh, But the situation is ambiguous. I think the suicide theory is probably the most likely, but I can't rule out the murder theory. The next feedback comes from Hootsman on Discord, who writes, I think there's another rather simple angle to Hess's death that should be given stronger consideration. He was the Nazi deputy Führer. People would want to kill him for that reason alone. He could be any Nazi and people would want to do him harm. But this guy was a famous Nazi leader, diehard believer and early member. So I would expect there to be even stronger hostility toward him in many corners of just the general public. Couldn't this be as simple as someone, even a typical non-secret agent guard, decided they wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to kill him, maybe particularly with rumors going around that he might be released soon? I could imagine this not even being a conspiracy until afterward with a cover-up, maybe partially just because none of the powers valued his life or because no one was willing to go through a trial against any nation's military personnel, if it was military, for killing a Nazi leader. Or they just wanted to avoid as much internal international controversy as possible for any number of international politics reasons. There even could be a less grand conspiracy of any number of people and even intelligence personnel or otherwise who maybe had for a long time kicked around the idea of killing him just because they hate Nazis, too, or decided to do it hastily, but without necessarily higher ups really approving. Higher ups may not have been willing to drag out the controversy once they did it as well. In any event, for some people, him being a Nazi leader was probably enough motivation for them to kill him, and likely enough, the powers, if they cared to look into it at all, may have decided they preferred to just cover it up than pursue the matter too strongly. So a challenge for a simple murder theory is that whoever decided to do it would be risking prosecution for murder, 
And it was not at all guaranteed that the authorities would just cover it up. Um, that's a pretty big risk if someone just decides, oh, I'm going to kill this Nazi. Yeah, but you're likely to get prosecuted for it. And you could get life or the death penalty or who knows what, depending on the legal jurisdiction uh, that would apply in a case like this, because you've got multiple overlapping international jurisdictions in Spandau prison. I assume you did anyway. Um, so that would, to my mind, suggest that if a murder occurred, it was more likely with some kind of collusion by the authorities um, who could guarantee that the murderers would not face justice. The next feedback comes from Radical Edward on Discord, who writes, thank you for saying anti-Semitism is bad. Too many Catholics still practice it. I agree, though fortunately there is much less of it today than there used to be, at least in many places. Uh, Jen Doe on YouTube writes, I know I shouldn't, but I couldn't help but chuckle once Jimmy started talking about the idea of Jewish people telepathically orchestrating their demise to make the Germans look bad. I always felt Germany got the short stick after World War I compared to other countries, but man, that's one wild thought. Excellent episode, and the theories are quite interesting. I can imagine Hess was one of those eager-to-please types who latched onto Hitler and Hitler just ended up stuck with him after a while. Yeah, it's interesting how Hitler used Hess, but didn't really respect him or value him that much after a certain point. And then Katarina DC on YouTube writes, I love these historical episodes so much. I don't naturally gravitate to documentary style media. Instead, I tend to seek escapism. But I always learn something from these and get far more emotionally engaged than with other forms of mysteries. For example, in this episode, Watching the Berlin Wall coming down and hearing the funny story about how it was initiated by accident after mistaken media reports and one man improvising when he didn't know the answers, I actually cried with happiness. I don't know what it is about these historical moments because I'm not usually a crier, but I certainly cry when the darker moments of history come up, for example, listening to recordings from when the atomic bombs were dropped or from the 9-11 attacks. And it's nice to be crying for happiness at this one. What a delightful moment in the history of the world. Thanks for sharing it with us. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And I agree that history is fascinating. History is full of stories. And if it ever seems boring, it's the fault of the storyteller. Either they haven't picked the right story or they aren't telling it the right way. Our next feedback comes from our episode 250A, Mysterious Feedback. And the first one comes from Tiger Jin on YouTube, who writes... Cat's out of the bag now. Do an episode on the Guadalupe Tilma. It's on the list. <laughs> Keeps coming up. Uh, and the next one is Kevin Hecht on YouTube who writes, I find Jimmy's logic, research, and reasoning highly persuasive, so his comments about the Tilma were like a dagger to the heart. I've long been a believer, but based on Jimmy's remarks, I've done some initial research, and there does appear to be some legitimacy to the argument that the Tilma is not miraculous. I'd like to hear more solid arguments for both sides of the issue. I'm a bit disappointed. Unlike Jimmy, I am convinced the Turin Shroud is the burial cloth of Christ. I'm grateful for Jimmy's ability to dispassionately present the facts and try to get to the truth. I too often let my heart get in the way. Well, thank you. And I understand the sentiments you express. Uh, in considering issues, I have to rigorously check myself and not just go with what I'd like to be true, which is why I don't, have a, don't presently have a settled opinion one way or the other about the Shroud. I know what I'd like, but 
I've got to consider the evidence dispassionately. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so sometimes I'm, I'm I'm sort of almost half dreading these episodes on the Kodoma <laughs> and on the Shroud. <laughs> I don't want to lose the, those things. But, you know, the truth above all. Uh, Ethelhart on YouTube writes, I believe it was Aquinas who said that Jesus was aware of and suffered for every sin that would ever take place on the cross, uh, that would ever take place on the cross, so that he was in some sense in that moment literally aware of and dying for each and every one of us in our sins. In light of that, if we take that to be true, which I lean towards but am not set on, then every sin we commit does literally cause Jesus' pain during his passion. Well, that would seem to be true. Um, on the other hand, it would attribute a near omniscience to Jesus's human knowledge that not everyone would be comfortable with. In recent times, magisterial figures have been more cautious about exactly what Jesus's human knowledge contained, and that include includes Pope Benedict XVI. Um, he uh, in his Jesus of Nazareth books uh, has a more restricted understanding of Jesus's human knowledge than what Aquinas said. He comments that Jesus in his humanity did, I mean, he knew everything in his in his divine mind, but in terms of his human knowledge, um, he says he didn't live in a kind of practical omniscience the way Aquinas thought he did. Now we move to feedback. Oh, on- I should say with Aquinas, he didn't think he was in his human knowledge fully omniscient. He didn't think that he knew in his human knowledge the details of every possible world, but he thought Jesus did in his human knowledge know absolutely all of the details of the actual world, Hmm. which would include, since we now have the atomic theory of matter, that would include Jesus knowing the molecular structure of everything all the way through history in detail. (laughs) That's That would be a lot of knowledge in human knowledge. That's a lot of knowledge. All right. Our next feedback is on going to be in episode 251 on the thylacine. And the first one comes from Greg Winters on Facebook. Listen to the podcast on my commute home through Dallas traffic today. My thought in the episode was, well, that's pretty cool. I just saw the picture and it went to way cool. Yeah. Thylacines do look cool. Travis McAfee on YouTube writes, I have post-traumatic stress disorder from the drop bear episode. I had to check the date to make sure I was not going to get duped again. I try not to repeat myself when doing April Fool's episodes. In fact, I've already written next year's April Fool's episode. I, I, I wrote it almost immediately after this year's. I was working on a story and I thought, hey, this would be a good April Fool's one. And once again... It's of a different type than any of the episodes that we April Fool's episodes that we've done so far. So um, so don't worry, I'm not going to do another drop bear like hoax anytime in the foreseeable future that I'm going to tell you about. (laughs) Speaking of drop bears, I saw this video yesterday Mm -hmm. uh, that someone took of these people, presumably in Australia. And a, and a koala attacking a kid, like leaping mm. on him. I'm like, uh-huh. drop bear. <laughs> yeah. One of our listeners sent it into me via Facebook Messenger. <laughs> Koalas actually, despite how cute they are, they're actually kind of nasty and will attack things. <laughs> yes, yes. They, they, are, they look cuddly. They aren't. Uh, Tyrannosaurus Imperator on YouTube writes, I think there are several points against de-extinction that were ignored. One. As the first animal in a new species, there will be no parents to teach it learned behaviors. 
the animal would likely not act like a thylacine, meaning it would be unable to refill the niche it's supposed to. Two, if the neo-thylacine shows the same reluctance to breed in captivity as the originals, would there be enough funding to create a big enough population to reintroduce them to the wild, or would the species only nominally exist solely as a testament to the power of science? Three, as soon as a thylacine is available, there's going to be massive bidding wars between zoos and governments across the world to get the animals. How would we ensure that the company that creates them doesn't end up owning the entire species, like how the Chinese control pandas? They lease pandas to zoos for a sizable fee and own all pa baby pandas produced. If Colossal ends up owning the entire species, how can they be released into the wild? 4. De-extinction via genetic modification is an untested pro process. Who knows what unforeseeable problems may occur before even reaching the point where we can worry about the previous points. It may end up, like fusion, being a money pit that's perpetually 20 years away from success. Adding these up, de-extinction seems unlikely to create a population that can be reintroduced into the wild without massive further investments. If the goal is to preserve or restore ecosystems, con con convert conservation, I was reading that wrong, conservation would be the better investment. It may not be as flashy, but it's been successful in the past. Well, I think uh, these are all good points and issues that need to be considered and debated and dealt with. Uh, I think it is possible to deal with some of them. Like, for example, you, you point out correctly that uh, the first neothylacines would not have parents that could raise them. But what you could do is have similar animals raise them or just have lab researchers raise them. And then before reintroducing them into the wild, you raise another generation and you let the existing neothylacines raise the next generation of neothylacines. And you may do that for several generations and then you start putting them outside and you start giving them more and more freedom. And eventually you've got a population that's living outdoors, not under constant human supervision, that is functioning like thylacines in, let's say, an enclosure in a wild animal park. And then one day you lift the gate after they've already adapted to life without being supervised by humans. Over a period of a few generations, you let them go. And you just you reintroduce the population that way. So I think there are ways of overcoming some of these challenges, but uh, they are challenges and, you know, they need to be debated. They need to be worked through if you're going to reintroduce them. At the same time, I think de-extinction would be a cool idea. And I'd love to have thylacines back. Go team thylacine. Yeah, one problem for reintroducing the thylacines back into the wild is how to prevent them from eating all the visitors to thylacine park. <laughs> I I think that they've got that one handled. Okay, okay, good. good. <laughs> I've seen a movie. Uh, mm -hmm. So Dutchman's Mine on YouTube writes, a great episode, Jimmy. I think bringing thylacines back could be very beneficial. People don't realize that kangaroos can really be a pest for farmers. Thylacines could possibly help keep their numbers in check. Yeah, kangaroos are interesting. Um, I know they can be pests. They also can be pets. Um, and I once read an account of a kangaroo that was owned by an Australian farmer. And the farmer was like out, 
you know, on a tractor doing work on his farm and he hit his head on a tree branch and fell off and was unconscious. And the pet can- fam- pets, the family's pet kangaroo realized there's a problem and hopped back to the house to get help for his owner. So it's kind of like uh, a Lassie episode, only more Skippy the Bush kangaroo in real life. <laughs> So uh, the next one comes from Tristan Sway, also on YouTube. Thylacines were scavengers like hyenas. They never killed other animals. Please stop the speculations. Well, based on the research I did, it it does look like thylacines were hunters. Uh, they may have scavenged scavenged some, but I don't have evidence of them subsisting exclusively or primarily by scavenging. And if they were known to just be scavengers, you know, like vultures are, people wouldn't have bothered trying to hunt them to extinction. The people at the time believed that they had evidence they were killing livestock. Anthony DeCano via email writes, Great episode on the thylacine. It's one of my favorite new episodes I've listened to since I started listening in the fall. I had heard of the thylacine in the past, but didn't know much about it, so this was a welcome episode. My eight-year-old son and I discussed the episode on the way to and from school. We were hoping for the possibility that there was a family in the wild and about the possibility of bringing them back. I'm hoping for both possibilities as well. As I said before, go team thylacine. Now we move to feedback on episode 251A on theistic evolution, a conversation you had with um, uh, a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry, I forgot for a second there. That Uh, that one may have been Michael Lofton. Oh, that's right. Michael Lofton. Sorry, Michael. Mm -hmm. Uh, Curtis Schulke on Facebook writes, I always thought the all-male priesthood was infallibly defined in part by St. John Paul II's famous statement that the church had no authority to ordain woman and no discussion was allowed around the issue. Also, it's always been universally agreed upon by the magisterium, but you mentioned that infallibility kicks in when an idea is not only universally agreed upon, but universally agreed upon that the thing should be defined infallibly. Does the all-male priesthood fit this criteria? You're right that the idea that something has always been taught is not sufficient for infallibility. That's a popular misconception. If you look at Lumen Gentium 25, the Vatican II document, uh, where the council considers the subject of infallibility, it does not mention always having been taught as a necessary or a sufficient condition for infallibility. What it does mention is teaching that a particular proposition is definitive that's what's sufficient. And according to John Paul II, the all-male priesthood does go into that category. He stated that the church's ordinary and universal magisterium has already taught on this subject definitively, and teaching something definitively makes it infallible. It wasn't infallible because he issued a new definition in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. He didn't do that. But in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, he said that it already had been defined by the Ordinary and Universal Magisterium. Alan Phipps writes on Facebook, Thanks, Jimmy. On a slightly divergent point, I suspect forcing the term theistic into something like this can be confusing. Just because something involves natural processes or even random chance, it doesn't follow that God is somehow absent. We don't call it theistic digestion or theistic photosynthesis. God is the source of all that is, even the processes at root in evolutionary biology. It seems to me that the better distinction is between evolution and atheistic evolution. Thoughts? 
Well, I think it's ultimately a question of semantics. I can see both sets of terms being useful in different situations. Uh, from one perspective, it would be useful to contact, contrast theistic evolution with atheistic evolution. I think the reason that theistic is often included in the term is because there are so many on both sides of the discussion, including both atheists and young earth creationists, who assume that evolution is atheistic. And so many people include the adjective theistic to make it clear that belief in God and belief in evolution are compatible. Mark Russell wrote on Facebook, it depends on what kind of evolution it is. It can't be Darwinian evolution because Darwinian evolution is by definition unguided. Catholics could only believe in guided evolution or, of, co of course, no evolution. Quoting George Gaylord Simpson, Evolution is a purposeless, mindless process that did, that did not have man in mind. This is what most evolutionary biologists, the so-called experts, believe and teach in their textbooks. They rule out God. They rule out God-guided evolution in principle. However, in public, they allow Catholics to believe that God and Darwin are compatible. God is compatible with evolution only when evolution is understood to be purposeful, and the end result is thought to be preordained. Darwinian evolution teaches that the end result is unpredictable and therefore not preordained. I'm afraid I disagree. Uh, the results of evolution are only unpredictable from a human perspective. We can't predict what the results of the process, uh, processes of evolution would be, but God can. As a result, God doesn't have to guide evolution in the sense of, you know, nudging it in a particular direction. He can nudge it if he chooses, but he can also set up the laws of the universe such that the processes of nature will naturally produce a result that he foresees without him needing to intervene to guarantee that that result happens. It will just happen because of the way he set up the processes. Like if you design a computer program to do a certain thing and you run the program, it'll produce the result you intended without you having to nudge the program that way after the programming is done. So um, I thus don't see God having particular goals for evolution, like, among others, the development of the human physical form, as being incompatible with the playing out of processes that God set up without him having to intervene and course correct those processes. Our next feedback comes from MN123456 on YouTube, who writes, Does Jimmy actually believe that the body of scientific evidence suggests evolution in polygenism is true? Or is the purpose of these types of arguments to attempt to remove stumbling blocks for people who are considering Catholicism, but might find accepting a young earth and creation too difficult to overcome? Well, as I believe I said in the interview, my primary purpose is not to give my own opinions. It's sketching what is and isn't allowed by the magisterium so that people can form their own views about how scientific and religious beliefs fit together so that people don't accidentally close off possible views and so that they don't get alarmed or doubt the faith when a scientific idea seems to be in conflict with a religious one or that they don't dismiss scientific evidence and arguments when it doesn't contradict what the faith requires. I'm trying to just sketch what the possibilities are and show that faith and reason aren't in opposition. We don't have to be threatened, and you can make up your own minds about what you think about these options. But I want you to know there are options. 
Odinson on YouTube writes, Evolution throws a major wrench in the account from Genesis. If Genesis isn't true, Adam and Eve aren't true. If Adam and Eve aren't true, original sin never happened. If original sin never happened, Jesus didn't need to be crucified for the redemption of our sins. Their faith in Jesus, the foundation of their religion, hinges on evolution not being true. Well, Odinson, I think it's always a good idea to watch a video before you comment on it. And so I'd suggest listening to the episode in this case, because I do believe in evolution and I believe in Genesis and it doesn't challenge my faith. That was the point of the interview, which was explaining ways in which they can harmonize. So I'd suggest checking out the actual episode. Dave Sheenan via email writes, Hey, Jimmy and Dom, regarding the episode on theistic evolution, it was a good midweek episode, but there's another group, including include me in this group, in the debate of evolution. Those who believe in an old earth, but do not believe in macroevolution from a single source. Microevolution is probably valid. Provably. Sorry, provably valid. As it is an unproven theory, has no direct fossil evidence, and is mathematically and scientifically improbable. Amino acids, mutations, etc. Yeah, we should we should clarify. He said microevolution is provably valid, but it's macroevolution that he says is unprovable, doesn't have direct fossil evidence and so forth. Very good. Thank you. There are there are several atheist and agnostic scientists and mathematicians that have recently been part of the abandoning Darwin movement and other scientists, again, not theists, who have proposed that most species, not all, are unrelated to any species prior to 150 to 200,000 years ago. My view is that we are unrelated to those who may have looked like us before Adam and Eve, and that the Earth is billions of years old, and that some species have survived from prehistoric times, while others are relatively new. Just another perspective. Hopefully this view is also acceptable by the Magisterium. Anyway, thanks for the sh- thank you for this show. I look forward to listening every week. Always good stuff. Well, I'm pleased to say that your view is not contrary to church teaching, so it would be acceptable from the faith perspective. Um, you know, whether it, there's good scientific evidence is an, is another matter. We will have a future episode looking at evolution at some point, and I would be happy to receive any documentation you can provide regarding the scientific claims you mentioned. That, yeah. that way I can include them as part of my research. Now we can move to uh, feedback on episode 252, The Amazing Life of Joshua Norton. And Michael O'Donnell sends an email and he says, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. Loved this episode. It inspired me to create the attached meme. Hope it gives you a chuckle. So the for the audio listeners, this meme is of Emperor Norton preparing to draw a sword, and it says, reject the two-party stalemate. Vote Emperor Norton the first 2024. <laughs> and I agree. Vote Emperor Norton. I'm, I'm on the Norton platform, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. And then our next feedback comes from Chris Buckley via email, who writes, as a former subject of his imperial majesty, I thank you for calling more attention to his illustrious reign and this woefully overlooked period of American governance. I was proud that my own grandfather celebrated the long-desired opening of the Emperor Norton Bridge as part of the crowd on opening day. Though long familiar with his benevolent reign, I was surprised to learn from your podcast that the emperor's demise took place outside Old St. Mary's Cathedral, in which I entered the Catholic Church in the Easter Vigil of 2005. The words above its weathered door now ring with all the more significance. Son, observe the time and fly from evil. 
That is a quote from Sirach 420. Long rumored rumored to have been placed below the cathedral clock face as a 19th century precursor to the new evangelism, a noted house of ill repute apparently being located directly across California Street, whose clients no doubt saw this warning accompanied by Sunday morning church bells as they departed from Saturday night's debauchery. I now prefer to see it as a possible commemoration of the emperor himself. Truly few in this life observed the hour and flew from evil to such profound, humble, and neighborly impact as Emperor Norton. Let light eternal shine upon him. Amen. And then uh, from the Emperor Norton Trust on Twitter. Yeah, how about that? Many thanks for the notice and links. Learned a couple of new things, too. Fresh eyes, fresh connections. Cheers. Thanks, and great to hear from you, Emperor Norton Trust. Keep up the good work. Then Spock's Bangs on Twitter writes, I hereby decree that Emperor Norton be featured on U.S. currency and a trust be established for Bummer and Lazarus. Thanks for another great episode. I hope the U.S. Treasury heeds your decrees. Uh, Ben H. on our Discord writes, With today's episode about a man declaring himself an emperor, it reminds me of another topic that would be interesting for the show, micronations. These include more relatively legitimate ones like Sealand, to places like Molossia in the desert that are basically just some guy's compound. Interesting examples and facts about them would make a great episode. Yeah, micronations are on the big list. Uh, Night U on YouTube writes, My only disappointment with this episode was I was really looking forward to getting episodes two days in a row. As I listened, I kept asking myself if it was possible the April 1st episode was being released a day early. I even checked the links to see if there was a very disturbing video. Well done. Years in which April 1st falls on a Thursday or a Saturday present a special challenge in terms of our normal Friday release schedule. And to save work, I may make special arrangements regarding the timing in years where where Thursday or Saturday is April 1st. But in other years, like next year, when April 1st falls on a Monday, we'll definitely have two episodes during the week. Very good. So, and that's all of our feedback this time. You too can send in your feedback, mysterious feedback on any of the topics we cover. And you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And Jimmy, you want to say something about your YouTube channel? Oh, yeah. I want to say, uh, you know, we have a video version of YouTube at my YouTube. We have a video version of Mysterious World at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And so I hope you'll check that out. Also, while you're there, be sure to hit the like button to tell the YouTube algorithm that you liked the video and it should show it to other people. That helps us build the audience. And um, we are trying to grow the channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put out. You can find links to any resources from this episode, uh, including that meme that was shared with us about Emperor Norton. You can see that on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 264A. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit 
sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.